You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. God, oh, oh, God, God, this place is dusty. Where are the lights? I don't know. It's been so long since I've been here. I've completely forgotten. All right. Hold on. I got. There we go. All right. I think we're in. Lights are on. Holy shit, look at this place. How long, have it, how long has it been since we've been here? Oh, uh, I, I, was it this last... Uh, I'm pretty 20? sure that guy was not lying in the corner there when I was here last. I don't think you can technically refer to that skeleton as a guy anymore. Uh, you know, well, yeah, we're I mean, not short of doing forensic tests, but <laughs> suffice it to say that was not there last time I was here. Well, it's been a while. I mean, this. oh, God, there's... Oh, dear me, there's that stack of He diffs. still had flesh the last time I was here. Yeah, he, he still owed me money as well. Uh, the, oh, God, that stack of discs looks... That, Ooh, that's it's that's foreboding. That's huge. Oh well, my God. let's no, kick off the Marcus. dust. What? Oh God! Oh God! Go check! Go check! Right. Hold on. What's right, the going? Is it there? Is it there? Yeah, Is there yeah, still some? Yes, left? there's there's some. Uh, it's the last one. We'll have to share it like we're sharing this mic. It's the last beer. Welcome after so, so long to Digital Noise. <laughs> May we apologize in advance for the, the quite serious interruption in uh, regular service, uh, which it's purely because of South by Southwest, which, uh, as anybody who knows anything about film criticism in Austin, you know how much that swallows our lives. So we're really sorry, but we are back. It's me, Richard. It's me, Marco. And we have returned. Yes. I wasn't at South by, but I was spending most of my time indoors and have since only recently relearned how to speak again, so it's coming back to me. Word hard. Anyway, thank you, and uh, as always, for picking Digital Noise as your choice of uh, DVD, uh, Blu-ray, and VOD rental news and reviews. Um... We are part of the oneofus.net family of podcasts, uh, which stretch from everything from... You know, game reviews, film reviews, uh, breaking news. Uh, we have a new politics podcast that's coming. Uh, I am uh, and uh, Gene will be starting a wrestling podcast in the oh. very near future, uh, pretty much just after WrestleMania. Uh, so if you if you like your grappling, tune in for that. We will be covering WWE, Ring of Honor, TNA, New <laughs> Japan, and a whole bunch of people listening to this podcast are going, "What TNA? What, what, what were those acronyms? I don't. Uh, I'm I'm now terrified." Um, but. Uh, there are a whole bunch of, of podcasts that you can only get if you're a subscriber. Uh, this is the best way for you to support uh, the site. It's The levels start at uh, two bucks a month, uh, and those little contributions just really make our life a lot easier, help keep all these amazing podcasts, including all the stuff you get for free on, online. There's multiple levels that get you up through, through exclusive commentary, commentary tracks, um, Theog, uh, the Breakfast Pub, all these great things that you can uh, you can get uh, just by becoming a subscriber. And if you are a subscriber, we appreciate your support so much. But this is digital noise. So if you watch, if you look down below, just scroll down, just scroll down below below the feed. No further. There, further. there, you, there, there you are. There it is. You'll see pictures of each individual title that we'll be reviewing this week. If you click on that title, that'll take you to the Amazon link. So you can just buy the disc if you if you like what we say, or if you completely disagree with what we say, or you know you you agree that something's terrible and you really want to upset a relative or something. You know, just 
click on it, buy it. If buy you, other stuff while you're there. Yeah. Well, if you buy that, we get a certain portion back from Amazon. It really helps us. We really super appreciate that as well. But if you're on a shopping trip to Amazon and you've gone from that link in the first place or any of the links on the site, we get a portion <laughs> of anything that you spend there. Quite literally, you can click on a film link and go, I don't want a film, I want a fridge. We get a portion of that. So that really, really helps us. And that has happened in the past. Buy two fridges. <laughs> Everybody needs two fridges and all the discs we review. The formal fridge and the informal fridge. And, yeah, it, so sponsorship, buying stuff, uh, visiting any of our sponsoring uh, uh, organizations uh, really helps us immensely. Uh, if you uh, like pretty things for your house, uh, Sideshow Collectibles are awesome. They do some of the best work out there uh, in uh, toys, statues, maquettes. Their work is astounding. So, uh, again, just click on the banners, and all this really, really helps keep shows like this on the on the air. So that's the... Uh, the housekeeping Best out of the way. So, uh, you know what we should get on to? We should get on to the, the reviews. reviews. You know what? What? I think we should start with something a little bit historical. Oh, yes. You mean old? Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> old. Uh, this, this is 1954's GOG, Gog. Um, which is uh, a, it's a science fiction film. Directed by Ivan Tors, and this is a, a really weird little little bit of SF history that's kind of been forgotten. That these were actually a series of interlinked films. Uh, begins with Magnetic Monster, which I think quite a few people have seen. Uh, then there was Rises to the Stars, uh, and this is the final one. And this is basically robots are evil and frightening. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and in 3D. Well, I mean, and these films all kind of follow the same the same idea, which is basically the the Office of Scientific Investigation, the OSI, which goes and investigates science crimes. <laughs> it's basic, which is kind of awesome. You know, it's, it's it's the FBI for science, which is how can you not love that? Um, and they're sent to a this time the the investigators are sent to a top secret uh, base out in New Mexico where they're uh, developing um, they're technology. They're doing science. They're doing lots of they're technology. They're doing lots of science. So, lots and lots of science. That's kind of how it plays out because really this is a really interesting film to me, but it's partly because Ivan Tours was like a notorious sort of like reader of Popular Mechanics and Science American, all these kind of journals, and if he found some article that he thought was cool. He said, we have to do a scene about that. Even if it slows the movie down, we still want to put that in there because it's cool. You get a lot of that in this movie. Oh, very, very much you so. Know? And uh, it feels very schematic. It's, uh, you know, if you walk into a room and a scientist tells you, you know, what this piece of machinery does and he spends five to ten minutes walking through the process, you know it's going to be important later. But he's well, really argue, not good at like presenting arguably. the science in a cinematic way. Yeah, well, it, but it does feel much more authentic in that way. It's like, it does. You know, if you've ever been on a lab visit and somebody's just explaining their kit to you, right? It's like that's exactly what it is. And then they die, and this actually opens up with for the 1950s one of the most subtly yeah. gruesome deaths. It, it it's actually really surprising. It, it never gets better than that first scene, though, because that is such a standout in the entire film. And after that, some of the air comes out of it. But suffice it to say, uh, you have a top-secret underground bunker uh, somewhere in the desert, and you have machines, robots, that are being developed and controlled by a supercomputer. And of course, if you've ever seen any kind of movie ever before, you know one of these machines, or 
the computer itself is going to become malevolent. What's interesting about this movie is these are ideas that are so recognizable today, and yet at the time, this was new stuff. Oh, yeah. It's quite forgotten now, but at the time, this was cutting edge. <laughs> yeah. What's really fascinating about this is it real because of where American science fiction cinema went after this, which was much more wham-bang, thank you, man, mm-hmm. um, this actually feels almost very Japanese. Hmm. It almost has that sense of, of when you watch a, a Godzilla movie and you right. take the monster stuff out, and there's a lot of people wandering around laboratories explaining science to you. Explaining there's science and having the, philosophical debates. Um, it also, it, it, it does have its action sequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it's slow moving, and it's not helped by the fact that um, they made the decision to have a very, very, very Spartan uh, uh, score. Uh, yes. When uh, when Harry Suckman's score is there, it's great. Yeah. But they really pulled it back, and and there's a lot of sequences where it's just people walking along a corridor, yeah. and it really reinforces in a lot of ways how much you rely on musical cues. Yeah, to keep it moving. And, and according to the commentary, because the, the, the oh, great Oscar, commentary, it's an great. Oscar winning. Well, a man who would become an Oscar winning and Emmy winning uh, composer, and yet they cut most of the music either because there just wasn't enough money to record it, or as uh, one of the uh, film historians on the disc uh, speculates that there was just so much science talk yeah and they really didn't understand today audiences you know will go oh that's a laser okay i know what lasers are it's like let me explain to you what a laser is it focuses a beam of light at a high frequency points where they basically explain robots to you yeah and people then didn't understand this stuff the the one of the other nice things about this is it is actually this release um from oh it's kino lorber yeah uh who are starting to get into the 3d Mm blu-ray they did the the mask recently which is one of the great weirdo canadian uh horrors of the 60s uh they restored the 3D for this. Yes. Now, I know you haven't seen that on 3D. Uh, I, I couldn't see it on 3D, but the special features where they discussed the uh, restoration process was fascinating. The, and this looks great in 3D. But it's there's very little stuff jabbing at the, out of mm-hmm. the screen at you. So it doesn't hurt it if you can't see it in 3D, honestly. Uh, yeah. Also, their DP only had one eye, so yeah, which stereoscopic vision was kind of not his forte. Brian Wilson was deaf in one ear. Yeah, you know. So, you know, I mean, that's that's not too much. Of a There's plenty of great one-eyed DPs. Yeah. I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't essential. No. Um, but I think if you like, if you're a fan of kind of classic 50s, 60s literary sci-fi, mm. or, if you're a, or if you really love a lot of Japanese science fiction from that era, which has that kind of, like, emphasis on science will save us or science will damn us, um, I mean, it almost feels for the first well, actually, pretty much for its entire duration. Like, um... Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, God, I'm blanking it's on the name. Right. The, um... It's all the dust South in here. By. It's yeah. getting to you. So- South by <laughs> dust. Um... Oh. The, uh, final Universal movie, where they go to... Where they, you know... Ah, Chris. What? With the, mut- with, uh, with the mutants. What? Not, Not unless... Oh, uh... This Island Earth. Yes. Yes. That's it's kind right. of like, it almost feels like the first, <laughs> yeah, I'm tired. We went a long way to get to there. The but first two-thirds of this Island Earth, because everybody forgets, they don't get until get to Metal Luna until right at the end. Right. And then it's like, all the alien stuff is it's basically like ten minutes. They get to Metal Luna, Metal Luna explodes, they come home. Um, it has that <coughs> kind of, you know, science 
sciencey feel, which is, I think, why people don't remember that opening two thirds. Yeah, it, of it this feels like Earth. an educational trading film spliced with like a, a robot monster movie. So it does have its moments that are work that work. It obviously is a very low budget film. I think based on that budget, they still manage to maintain a very consistent aesthetic and make a very pleasing looking film. Uh, but really, the, the meat of this is in the special features. The film itself, I think, is good. It's worth watching once. Uh, you're not going to fall in love with it. But the story behind its making of Ivan Tours, of all the people brought onto this project, and uh, the restoration itself, because for many years, one of the uh, film strips was believed permanently lost, and they managed to find an old copy. Because if you know anything about traditional 3D, it's done with two pieces of film that have to be synced up perfectly. So if you're missing one piece of that film you're out of luck but they managed to put it together and it was truly a labor of love yeah. and it really really looks good for a for that for a film of this period yeah, it really holds it's up very really well it really is is stunning uh the opposite of stunning uh a film that uh, i i you I did not see it. you did not see I, you know okay let's put this let, let me let me posit something for you if i came to you and said hey I've got Sam Rockwell, Jermaine Clement, Danny McBride, Will Forte, Leslie Bibb, and Leslie Bibb, and Amy Ryan signed up for a black comedy about religion. Would you be on? Would you say I'm it's, at least interested? You have my attention. No, no, because I'm talking about Don uh, the Day. Oh, I'm talking about a hypothetical movie that oh, might no, actually I'm, be good. But I'm we're talk talking about the real movie that exists. A movie that took a total of $31,309 at the U.S. box set box office, and that is $31,310 more than it deserved <laughs> to take. Oh, my God. Uh, this is, I, I, I love Sam Rockwell. I think he's, <laughs> he's great. I think... He is one of these actors that you have to be so careful in where you put him as a lead. Mm. Because he so underplays everything that it's really easy for him to just look like he's he's sleepwalking. And, wow, it, he's positively comatose in this. He plays uh, Don Verdane, who is uh, a quasi-archaeologist who spends all his time... Uh, finding biblical artifacts to prove that the Bible is literally right and selling them to uh, churches in America. Uh, his contact is a guy called Boaz, who is a uh, uh, an illegal archaeologist in Israel who basically he goes to places, digs stuff up that he's not supposed to because it's all supposed to be heavily licensed, passes them to Don Verdane, Don Verdane then passes them off as the real thing. Ayo, but it, it's so weirdly structured because Don Verdane knows this stuff is fake and doesn't care because he thinks it's going to make people more religious. So oh. he's, he, you've got this whole thing of like he's trying to square an intellectual circle, but he never does. Nor does he really try that hard. He knows he's a liar. He knows that everything he's peddling to people is a lie. And that the stuff that he's presenting as evidence to increase faith is a lie. And rather than at any point going, well, doesn't this mean that maybe I should question my own faith? Just goes, meh. And the story moves along rather boringly. That sounds like and a premise that never gets developed very well. And as a premise, that's interesting. Complete. Well, that's the thing. I was, I was kind of like, this, this could be good. Yeah. 
Um, and instead, what you've got is Sam Rockwell in the most suspect-looking pasted-on beard I think I've ever seen in my life, um, mumbling through lines. Uh, Jermaine Clement is a character who, at best, is unpleasant and, at worst, is possibly a rapist. Um... <laughs> Amy Ryan Wait, you're, you're, as his character, not Jermaine. We're yeah. not Jermaine. saying anything about Jermaine Clement. <laughs> Jermaine Clement's lovely. Yeah, I'm sure he's a nice. lovely he, man. He yes. seems really nice. <laughs> um, Amy Ryan as Dr. Dane's uh, personal assistant, who is there seemingly just to have a slightly unpleasant stuff happen to her. Like at one point, they decide they're going to find Goliath's skull by uh, standing near where they thought he died and using a slingshot to throw it to fire a uh, rock into the air but they're really bad with a slingshot so they just kind of hit her in the uterus instead and this is as close to funny as they get hmm. and it's not funny this is this is one of these projects where you just go who why how did you not know that this was not going to be funny well, you know this yeah. is by the same director of uh napoleon dynamite and a film that I enjoyed, uh, not as much as some people did, Jared Hess, uh, you know, and he, he has kind of been committed to making these sort of quirky yet somehow family friendly, you know, usually they're in the PG, PG-13 range. I don't know what family uh, this is going to appeal well, to. Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, he, he from what I recall, uh, he's a Mormon. He doesn't like cursing. He doesn't, you know, yet he find, he rides that line of of dark comedy and quirky humor, but somehow it just never for me it hasn't uh, really worked since Napoleon Dynamite. Nacho Libre was okay. That other one, Gentleman Broncos, I don't even remember watching. Yeah, which which incidentally you know, was the last time we worked with Jermaine Clement, so he must yeah. just have photos of him. Uh, yeah, I mean he seems to get people on board on these projects, and they seem to like working with the guy. He, he may be very personable and likable, but uh, this particular approach that he has towards filmmaking has just gotten less and less interesting to me. So when I had to pick something in the pile not to watch, this was one of the ones I decided I won't have time for this one. If I don't if I get to it, great. If not, I'm not gonna feel bad about this it. This is this is a weird and it sounds like I ducked the bullet. Yeah, this is a weird face plant for movie for all concerned. I think it's final you know it, it when you're making a film about the faith of evangelical Christians, you either just have to you know, bite the bullet and, you know, say, okay, we're going to really just mock the evangelical movement. Go full Book of Mormon. Uh, or you have to make uh, one that's going to appeal to evangelicals and, and just say we're going to suck up the, you know, obviously quite viable at the box office uh, e uh, evangelical ticket-buying public. He doesn't and do that is either. a market. And this is, and it really seems like this is a Mormon comedy mocking Southern Baptists. It's like, the hell is the market for that? Well, you know, uh, if you think about it, an average price of like 10 bucks a uh, <laughs> a, a ticket, uh, the market for that was about 3,000 tickets. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Fail. And I'm sure at least three of those guys thought they had bought a ticket to a different show. So, I mean... Fail whale of the... Not have gone in purposefully. Of the, the greatest order. Uh... <laughs> So. And while now while we're talking about films that uh, may or may not split audiences quite heavily, because oh, yeah. a lot of people are just going to go, what, what? Yeah. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah, this uh, is a film that, again, is, you can, how do you define failure? Or how do you define, you define success? success. So. Uh, Guy Madden is... I, I, I don't regard Guy Madden as a filmmaker. I regard Guy Madden 
as an artist who happens to work in film. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And yeah. his latest project, uh, The Forbidden Room, uh, is... It, it's a puzzle box or movie. This is not a narrative, folks. This yeah. is not a narrative at any, at any level. It feels like an anthology, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we should set this up a little bit for folks, because uh, the premise behind this is actually very intriguing. Uh, Guy Madden is a, is a well-known Canadian filmmaker, uh, working largely independently. Sometimes he's managed to get bigger names attached to his projects. And he's I've always thought of him something of a, as something of a Luddite. He's sort of fascinated with uh, silent cinema and uh, not just the technology behind it, but the look, the feel of film that has degraded disintegrated, becomes scratched, the old techniques of irising and washes and hand tinting. So there's something very pastiche about it. And yet I always thought to myself, it's so aggressively, maybe that's the wrong word, it's so assertively arty and stylized that I think it tends to shut people out who might otherwise appreciate it. Uh, but from a narrative point, I've never found that to be his strong point. And this film really compounds that. This is this is really a compilation of all of his strengths and weaknesses distilled into one product. And the premise behind it's fascinating. He took the names of a bunch of uh, films that have been lost, silent films that did exist, but have completely been lost to time. And so he wanted to capture the spirit of those films, so he says and recreate those films and cut them all together. And yet, what you really get is just a title that then becomes a springboard for whatever crazy thing Guy Madden wants to make a movie about and then throws it all together in an interlocking way that totally confounds any sense of narrative, time, or place. I mean, I think what people are going to find interesting, who know Guy Madden's work, and what they're going to find interesting about this is the fact that after years of a formal dedication to to celluloid mm-hmm. he's now working on video which allows him to do you know kind of go further down his own rabbit hole yeah i actually <laughs> thought that <laughs> was an Adam. En- yeah i thought that was an encouraging <laughs> development because he pulls off some effects not only does he I mean, this is more than just Guy Madden making a film like he normally would and then applying a like an Instagram filter over it. He does some things that are a little bit more self-conscious. There are certain shots, if you've ever seen that moment when a piece of celluloid catches on fire and you see it projected on the screen, the images begin to bubble up. He replicates that more than once. But at one point, he has a singer, and this is a haunting effect that I really like. He has a character who's a crooner in a nightclub, and the rest of the shot is pretty normal, but the, only the singer is melted and bubbling. That is something you cannot achieve on celluloid. That is purely a digital effect. You can't not notice it as a digital effect. And yet, he's not using digital effects to create reality. In fact, all of his sets are purposefully very crude, very expressionistic, obviously pasteboard and fabric. But this digital technology, I think, has actually given him a new color in his paint box. And I'm curious to see where he's going to go with and this it. Is fascin- the structure of this is fascinating. You start off with a scene mm-hmm. from one of these lost films, and then something will intrude that has no place right. in that. It's a series of French scenes where one character enters and that the scene begins. And then, and then he leaves, and a, leaves another character and goes, goes. Into a, and goes into a different context. So it's, right. and it, these are completely unrelated contexts. So it, it, it parlays from uh, a submarine at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> to a bunch of woodsmen 
um, who have no connection apart from the fact that one of the woodsmen suddenly finds himself in the submarine and then goes, and yeah. then goes, sorry, basically I've got to go back to my own story. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this, mm-hmm. in, into this kind of nesting doll series of not even full narratives, like hints of narratives. And then it comes back out the, again, the other end. I mean, it, it, it reflects upon itself. Yeah. Um, Madden, he's one of these guys that you, you, you watch and you go, is this just, Playfulness? Is there something deeper going on? Is there is there a, a is there a, a finalized thought, or is it just a meditation? And I think it's very very hard to tell um, because that's not what he does. No. You know, Madden, I think, goes and experiments and experiments. And you know, if you, I mean, honestly, if for people who've never seen Guy Madden, uh, basically take the most experimental points of David Lynch's career. And I'm not talking... I'm not even talking Eraserhead. I'm talking Inland Empire. Yeah. And remove any vestige of plot and instead just make this something which is an experiment in shape and form. Uh, but and less creepy. Uh, yeah, far less creepy. Yeah, I mean, this is weirdly charming. It is charming. I mean, when you have a bunch of... When you have a bunch of submariners who are... T- desperately this is the the submarine plot and again i use that word very loosely is one of the more thought out pieces it's the first piece we're introduced to it's these submariners they are they are transporting this stuff called like explosive jelly and you know they can't raise or lower if they do they'll change the atmosphere in the 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 pressure in the hole and blow the shit up so they are down there at the bottom of the sea surviving on the air pockets of oxygen contained within flapjacks. I mean, that's the kind of mentality of this film. And really, it is self-indulgent. I've often thought he flirts with self-indulgent. In my opinion, this film is about 30 minutes too long. Uh, The uh, idea works, but uh, it's too long. I think, yeah, I think it's he really kind of goes furthest down uh, that problematical path with this weird semi-framing mechanism uh, of how to take a bath. Yeah, and I'm not kidding about that. that, that it, there is a guy like, explaining to you how to take a bath, and I'm like, and that's an entertaining short. But what does it have to do with anything? Well, it also it, it does rather wonderfully mean that there was actually at some point in in the early history of cinema a film entitled How, how to, to Take, take a, a bath, bath, which, which is a I'm real title. Pr- I'm pr- pretty sure was probably a nudie cutie. Maybe um, so. But yeah, this is like I said. This is this isn't a film per se. This is a a a, a film experiment. Um, this and would if you, really if look you, great. If you <coughs> excuse if, me. Oh yeah. If you like Guy Madden, and honestly, if you've got a, a nice big screen to watch it on, <coughs> and, a, and, a, and a good sound system to really immerse yourself in, this is this is as close to you know kind of a. A film installation piece, which has yeah. kind of lost its way as uh, an art form, uh, and I find that rather sad. I, you know, I remember seeing a lot of really great stuff in uh, in London in the in the eighteen mm-hmm. nineties uh, where people were really pushing the edge with with installations. This is really that with a little bit more yeah. structure, but not a hell of a lot more. Yeah, beautiful individually. The shots, the scenes are beautiful, but as a narrative, don't expect that. But if you just want some fascinating imagery. This would be really nice to play on a screen at a party. 
You know, it's just this very slick thing to look at and quite beautiful. But moving onwards. Speaking, speaking of, of beautiful, a film that uh, actually picked up uh, a few um, Academy Award nominations, mm-hmm. uh, including for cinematography, and I think quite deservedly so. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I don't think it, did, it would have deserved to win, uh, but I think definitely... Um, Gorgeous film. Yeah. Uh, is Carol, uh, which is the uh, adaptation of uh, Patricia Highsmith's The Price of Salt, uh, directed by Todd Haynes, uh, the you know, the the story is I think pretty well known because this was one, this this is one of these few films that really kind of screwed itself uh, by having two lead performances, uh, two lead female uh, female performances who therefore end up going head to head in the uh, best actress uh, category, which kind of really, I think really hurt it at the end of the day. Um, it's uh, basically a, a romance set in the nineteen fifties. Uh, between Carol, played by Kate Blanchett, who is a uh, uh, a wealthy housewife in the middle of a divorce, um, and uh, Therese, played by Rooney Mara, who is a a shop girl, um, uh, and you know they engage in a, a kind of beautifully slowly played out trip to a, a romance. You know, there's obviously a friction and a frisson between them, but this is the this is 1950s America, where being um, uh, an out lesbian basically was an impossibility, uh, particularly if you were married. And you know, her divorce, Carol's divorce, is going horribly because her husband knows that she's had a series of affairs. Um, and he's trying to ensure that she doesn't get custody of, the, of their child. He's uh, prepared to do some pretty, pretty devious, oh, duplicitous yeah. things. Yeah. Um, you know, <sighs> you know, it, the, it's the, interesting to me that I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh no, it, it's interesting to me that I don't believe the word lesbian is ever used. I don't believe the word homosexual is ever used. No. It's so repressed. People, I mean. As I said, it was the love that dare not speak its name. Well, they don't even speak the name of that love in this film. Yeah. Uh, it's all very implied, even though it's obvious what's going on. And Todd Haynes is kind of, this is very much in his wheelhouse. I think his previous films have explored some of these same themes. And uh, rather than hit the audience over the head with it, by going back to the 50s and utilizing a lot of these same kind of uh, techniques and uh, aesthetics of these old 50s uh, melodramas, he's managed to wring a lot of, of pathos out of a scene without milking it for all it's worth, without blowing up in a melodrama, without... That's another reason why I don't think this won any Oscars uh, for performances, because the performances are magnificent. But there's not one of these big, crying, huge, emotional obvious you know academy awards clip here these women are allowed to play these people very often just thinking looking reacting i haven't seen this much hand acting since like a bresson film i mean (laughs) he can just show hands touching one another and that is an enormous emotional impact it's very subtle and very beautiful in that regard well haynes is a man who takes forever to get a film done he does so much uh, background work and, and research, um, you know, sometimes for, for, for better, sometimes for worse. I'm, I'm still a firm believer that Velvet Goldmine is one of the worst movies of the late 90s. <laughs> uh, I really loathe that film. It's just, it, it, he just didn't understand the material at all. Yeah. Uh, this is much closer to, I mean, this really is in many ways a sequel to, or, or a parallel piece to Far From Heaven, yeah. which tackled uh, interracial relationships. Um, in this period, uh, it really feels like he built a lot on and that. Also had a spouse who was having a homosexual affair. Yes, but yeah. it's the other spouse. And but yeah, <laughs> this is the, the flip side to that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, mean, 
I admired this film an awful lot, but I think the problem for it, in a, in a lot of ways, it's almost the same problem as as, as Gog has. That what mm. made the Price of Salt revolutionary at the time was that it featured a a gay relationship that doesn't end catastrophically. Right. Which you know, like in popular media at the time, even in literature that was intended for the closeted and open gay uh, audience it doesn't end well whereas you know not to spoil anything but like this because it's a little bit more naturalistic it doesn't <coughs> and never drops into that degree of melodrama right. and that was what Highsmith wanted to represent um, it portrays them as real people as opposed to you know plot points within a melodrama but the the fact that it's played so straight that now it's not as revolutionary to say, you know, not you know, characters don't all end up committing suicide or in mental right. institutions. Um, so it, it kind of loses a little bit of that. Uh, you know, I know that everybody raved about uh, Blanchette's performance in this, and there are a couple of scenes where I really feel that she is is spectacular because she you know, this res- this kind of cold restraint mm-hmm. that she shows. But then there are other bits where I'm like. I don't know. It, it's Blanchette going through the motions because I think she she can be so good that when she's just meh, well, I don't it still looks good, but it, it really didn't. I, I don't know, see it as going through the motions. I think it's just trusting the material and realizing that you don't have to put a spin on it. You oh, don't. I have didn't to feel that. I, I just act felt to it, the back row. You don't, I don't even think she was necessarily acting particularly to the the front row. I felt that it was it was a, almost it, it was. She was overplaying the underplaying. Uh, it I felt, a, li- but, it but felt again, a little Todd bit Haynes like... Todd Haynes is trying... I think, really, his actors try to fit that 50s-style movie yeah. star, you know, in terms of diction, in terms of presence. There is... It's not this sort of mumbling Brando, De Niro style no. of naturalism. It's more poised. It's more artificial. And that's the interesting... I think, balance of his work. In yeah. some way, he reminds me of Guy Madden in that he's using an older style in a new way or at least using new technology to capture something that was kind of forgotten. I think Todd Haynes is often compared to like the sort of successor to guys. Uh, back in the day, they were called women pictures or directors yeah. of women pictures, guys like William Wyler or uh, Douglas Sirk. And, you know, in this day and age of blockbuster filmmaking, a lot of times it's hard to get films made that just feature female relationships, deal with domestic issues, emotional problems, uh, things that are not high concept. And I, I agree with you. You're right that this was once revolutionary by virtue of the leads yeah. and their sexual orientation. Now it seems pretty pat. But I do see two actresses trying to convey... Basically, she's playing Grace Kelly. Yeah. She's trying to play Grace Kelly. And that Grace Kelly, as wonderful an actress as she was, she never came across as a human being. She came across as a movie star. But when you've got Sarah Paulson, who plays um, Abby, who oh, yeah. is... You know, you know, it's it's heavily implied that their relation. I mean, they're they're lifelong oh, it's friends. More than and implied, and, but the, it, it's never stated that there was basically Carol's sexual coming out. It's just that they had a relationship when they were much younger. Um, that you know, I think Paulson manages to strike that tone better than Blanchette, who I think can be. Like I said, I think she she overstates the understatement, yeah. um, and I think that. 
the scene, there's the, a handful of very quick scenes with her and uh, Rooney Mara, and I think those are amongst the most powerful because they just feel a little right. bit more authentic. And yeah, I, by the end, I think the thing was that I understood Therese by the end. I understood Abby by the end. Well, I think I you're supposed to. I don't think I understood uh, a Carol as as much because I think the attempt to make her so glacial and distant and so much of a kind of uh, a mysterious figure mm. undercuts the, the ability to make her human. She's never mm. you know, the, she's never off. To me, that actually was that worked to its advantage because despite the name, I think the actual and the screenwriter of this who knew Patricia Highsmith actually confirmed this that the Therese character is basically. Uh, Pat Highsmith's uh, oh, yeah. alter ego. And I think I Carol think is the older woman who has been married, who has a child, who is this mystery to her. This is, despite the title, uh, again, the original title of the novel was uh, The Price of Salt. Now, for whatever reason, it's been named Carol, which I think is to highlight I think, uh, you know, Blanchette. It's, it's, but it's, it's about times her it mystery. Been, I think at various times it has been published as Carol. But the problem is, is if you highlight the mystery, that only works if it's if it's almost singularly told from Therese's point of view, which it isn't, it, that's true. That's, I think it's I think it it, it 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 that level it wants it cake and eat it because I think if it is about Therese, you need to pull Carol's part. Instead, it is very much written as a two-hander, uh, and I, yeah, I think it's a little it, uneven weirdly, in that sense. Carol is the is. I mean, still great, but the weaker link in this, which yeah. is an in, which is an interesting problem. I, I really felt but it I, was Rooney Mara, the the actress playing Therese. I, I felt that it was her story. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it was I think it was intended as her story, but I think but you know, Kate Blanchett's presence yeah. means that you know she gets featured more. Yeah. but still very much worth seeing. Oh yeah, I mean this is you know there's reasons why this um, got so much awards buzz, uh, you know, and it is beautiful. And it's nice to it's see a film for show. adults. That's yes. nice. After I do occasionally have my like superhero, you know, overload. I'm like, I just want to see a movie about real people now, you know, before I go back to the cinema and see some crazy stuff. Oh my God. I can already see what we're going to review next. <laughs> oh I thought we were talking about real people and now you throw this at me. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the, another period piece for this is actually, <laughs> because this is a, a long with, a uh, uh, longstanding and long, long awaited by no one. No one. Uh, <laughs> this is such a re-release. weird film. Uh, this is such an ill-considered film. Um, Ill-conceived film. At every level. This is uh, the 1972's The War Between Men and Women, uh, which is really kind of a, a an odd, not-quite-bio of the famous uh, cartoonist uh, James Thurber. Yeah. Uh, who... I never recall Thurber being this nasty this and... Troglodytic. Mis- misogynistic. And no. it's all done for laughs. All right, I'm going to jump ahead and just tell you my favorite line in this movie. When you, a little you girl, have one? Yes, one. Because to me, when I saw, when I heard that, I thought, well, that sums up this attitude, this whole movie for me. A little girl, after a drunken night, a cartoonist and his girlfriend's ex-husband have bonded over their mutual hatred of women and in their drunken stupor begin drawing a mural across the wall depicting the literal battle between men and women and 
you know, it's all an excuse to have these James Thurber-inspired animations, which would be cute if they weren't so horrible. And in the morning, the girlfriend and the daughter come down and see the room and these drunken wrecks of men and all these misogynistic, cute drawings that we're supposed to find hilarious. And the little girl says the immortal line, Mommy, why are there so many dead women on the walls? And I thought, you know what? I'm done. I still watched the rest of it, but I thought... I have already made my decision by now. Yeah. But this is, you know, it's it's part of that wave of 1960s uh, relationship comedies that you'd look at and just, oh, actually 1972, relationship comedies that you just go, wow, this was a this was a bleak era yeah. for, for this humanity. Is the long, this is the long-forgotten rom-com the members of the uh, men's rights movement have been dreaming of. <sighs> Probably been praying for over Yeah, decades. they just didn't know it existed. Thank God this is out there for them. Jack Lemmon played... Uh, Jack Lemmon in one of his, his weaker performances. And I love Jack Lemmon, but Not God, in this. Uh, plays a cartoonist who... He hates people. He hates kids. He really hates, he hates women. dogs. Yeah, that's classic movie. Ter- Dude, anyone who hates a dog in a movie is the villain. Why would you make Jack Lemon hate dogs? He sh- hate women, okay. Hate people, okay. But when you tell me he hates a dog, the man is completely irredeemable. Well, and then he kind of he falls into a relationship uh, with um, uh, Terry, played by Barbara Harris, who, who does a good job with what she, she has to deal with. She doesn't have a lot to deal with, though. Not much. Um, and you know, she's got kids from her previous uh, marriage, and then they they decide to get married, even though clearly you've set up everything in the previous half hour saying that Jack Lemmon's character is not going to get married, uh, particularly because she has kids. And they have the hilarious moments where they're like, oh, no, we've got to explain to the kids that we're having sex. It's like, yeah, no, your kids know. And like, This we, is kind of like care. as good as it gets for like the misogynistic, misanthropic people of the world. You know, except you kind of believe Jack Nicholson's character warms up to these people in his life, whereas you never have any real reason why the Jack Lemmon character would suddenly stop hating people. Yeah, he always hates them, but he's married and trying to be a good father, but he still hates them. And then Jason Robards turns up as the uh, the first husband, who's yes. this... You know, chari- and they bond because they're men. Yeah, he's this charismatic war photographer. And none of this makes any sense. No. And it's, then there's like a tragic death towards the oh end. And then you have this melodramatic thing where one character has a serious medical issue. And then it ends with this f- animated fable about men and women. And it's this creepy image of Jack Lemon telling some moral story to a little girl as illustrated by all of these little kid cartoons of men and women destroying one another and then because it, it's so ill-conceived this it is does the, not know any tone or message that it's trying to this communicate is, this is totally one of the weirdest messiest films I think I've seen seen in a decade it's, no clue what it wants to be uh, it's aged horribly because of the, the sexual politics of the era which basically went well boobs yeah. That's pretty much it. Well, also Oops. the pill. This was very much women are suddenly sexually liberated. At one point, you find a young child who's not ODing, that's the wrong word, but he gets sick, violently ill, and it's like, what were you eating? I thought they were aspirin. And of course, he's been eating his mother's birth control pills. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's so awful. Please do not watch this movie, it, unless you hate women. I, I really, if you hate women and you never want to leave the house, watch this movie. You're the only person this movie exists for. I recently got to uh, talk to the editor of The New Yorker, uh, and we were discussing the history of the magazine, and he actually said, you know, the, the, there is 
nothing crueler to to comedy than time. Yeah, and uh, this film truly proves that point. Yeah. This is this uh, is one of these movies where you're just like, I don't know who thought this was something that needed a re-release at this point, um, particularly on Blu-ray. That seems like a lot of effort for a film that I don't know who the hell the market is, but this is just... No. I'm actually curious to go and dig up what the contemporary reviews for this film were. For all I know, people loved it, but God, it has not aged well. No. Um, a film that, <clears throat> you know, I'm really, really glad we have a Blu-ray release of, mm. uh, because it has a weird little uh, little place in horror history, mm-hmm. uh, is... Um, Children shouldn't play with dead things, yes. uh, which it, it's the the first collabor- first film collaboration between Bob Clark and Alan Ormsby, um, who between the two of them went on to do Black Christmas, um, uh, Deranged, which is still arguably the the best Ed Gein movie that's not Psycho, because Psycho isn't really an Ed Gein movie. No, not really. Um, the pair of them, after they after they went their separate ways, were responsible for so much as well. You know, yeah. uh, Clark went on to do Christmas Story, Porky's, Porky's <laughs> did, you know, and wait, Super Geniuses. Well, yeah, we don't Baby talk, Geniuses, whatever the hell yeah. that movie was. Uh, Very big career. After you know, and Ormsby, he actually in a way in an attempt to uh, kind of rehabilitate the relationship, uh, he brought Ormsby on for Porky's Two. Uh, you know, they got they, you know, uh, this was where it started, and this is yeah. one of the weirdest horror films uh to to come out of the 70s you will ever see yeah because it's it this is 72 this is you know they basically ad- admitted they wanted to not rip off but yeah rip off steal from the market uh of night of the living dead yeah. but this is before the the gore doors opened yeah. and before the sexual revolution really because i mean this is the no, no, chastest no. group of people in a cabin i've ever seen in a movie of well, this nature well the the basic narrative is that this bunch of uh jobbing uh actors uh in miami in the uh uh, uh the early 70s uh fall under the spell of, of the the most horrible <laughs> Theatre uh, uh, entrepreneur yeah. you've ever seen, played by Ormsby in Himself. the most spectacular pair of pants. E- everybody looks seen. like they could be background characters in a Scooby-Doo cartoon. I mean, that's the kind of wardrobe they're wearing. Uh, wow, I cannot understand the Ormsby character or why any of the other actors follow him. He's Actually, constantly I- threatening them that he's going to put them on, you know, he's going to cut off their job I'm like... It can't be that hard to actually, find a Alan, job. Alan Ormsby did actually because uh, I got a chance to meet him last year, and he said, "You know, I, I reading the reading the script and thinking about it again. Like you just look at it and go, why don't don't they all go? Oh yes, because dinner theater in Miami is paying the fucking bills. Yeah, fuck you. It's completely why they unrealistic. Quit? But you know, they are at some level supposed to be under under his his." Uh, uh, Svengali yeah. esque influence. Yeah. We never get that impression from him, though. That I could almost buy it if you believe that he was this charismatic artist that they were willing to do anything just to be part of his, you know, circle. And well, it's never explained why they're there. He's just like, we're going to go and dig up a body. Well, but the thing is, they, they can't, you kind of almost feel that they're going, yeah, why not? Yeah, but they're yeah. just kind of like, you know, it, it's 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 kind of a a, a slightly hate feel commentary on hippie culture just going let's do some stuff yeah and almost be uh, alan who 
played by Ormsby, whose whose name is Alan. In fact, pretty much every single member of the Everyone cast has their own name. is is under their own names because you know Bob Clark went. It's going to be remember. It's going to be easier for you to remember, and you're going to be you know mm. you're going to react more naturally yeah. because most of these people were not actors. Obviously, uh, they get so they go to this island and they dig up a corpse, and uh, they're going to you know hold a a séance with the corpse. Well, they accidentally manage to raise the dead. Uh, yes, you in, do. In this sequence that really is a complete ripoff of Night of the Living Dead. It is, but effective. But this is here's the weird thing about why this film works. And it, A, it does have this kind of weird underlying creepiness about it. Because you just feel like these are slightly... Dis- unlike Night of the Living Dead where you go, these are flawed characters who are are going to be self-destructive because they really can't grasp what's going on. You kind of look at these people and go, you people are idiots and at a certain level deserve to die. And Alan is the worst of the lot because he really doesn't care about them. And there's a wonderful moment where the zombies have got into the house and they're chasing Uh Alan and one of the other characters. And Alan pushes her to the zombies to slow them down. She lands at the bottom. Oh, yeah. And the the zombies (laughs) look up at him with this look of, Okay, yeah. we're actually going to eat her, but you're a terrible person. Yeah. Just in case you thought he was even slightly redeemable. No, nope. yeah. the more there is a more you know it, 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 when zombies are passing moral judgment on you, uh, you know this is a very strange kind of end of the counterculture yeah. movie. It does not go to the extremes of the death of the counterculture um, no. that Texas Chainsaw did two years later, which really kind of it. it this is kind of on the one. Well, it's arguably the last gasp of rubber mask yeah. uh, horror. It, does, uh, it's, fair it feels like a, a final commentary on a lot of the stuff from the fifties and sixties. There's little to no gore in it, and you know it's, it's they couldn't because af- they couldn't they afford, afford it. So literally, uh, Alan Ormsby actually, uh, aside from starring in oh, it, he did the makeup. At, yeah, uh, and uh, writing the script, uh, yeah. co-writing the script was was the makeup guy and effective uh, makeup really for what good. it is. Yeah, for what it is, and on the budget and the time. I mean, they basically just like got all their friends and said, yeah, "Come out for a day and be a zombie." It actually does hold up in the zombie scenes. There's one or two shots, just the angle that Bob Clark uses, the lens that he uses, and then towards the end, there's some use of slow-mo and some silence that actually are genuinely creepy and effective. I I have to say, I think... But we're talking like two percent effective, and the rest of it is unintentionally campy, and it's it's a weird. Oh no, tone. I think I think it's inte- it's intentional. I, I don't know how campy they meant to be, but pretty it's, campy because you know they, you know it's it, there are some stuff that there's some stuff that doesn't age particularly well. Uh, there are two of the most uh, camp gay stereotypes oh, you'll ever see. Yeah, but All right, you know, fair as Alan said, you know, like that was the era. That's how you, that's how people portrayed gay characters. Mm-hmm. Like in hindsight shouldn't have but that's that's you know it is what it is that's that's how you show those characters at the time particularly in a theater environment and they did kind of feel like the the dysfunctionality of a of a small theater group where there's no. one guy who you've kind of let be in charge but you all think he's an idiot yeah i mean they all clearly hate him and mm. just like this, this is a nice guy who always does what he's told but he's also like the most skilled person i mean yes i agree with you on that there is a little bit of familiarity with that yeah. if you've ever spent any time in community theater but you know what uh really for me where this disc 
shines is on the special features. The movie itself is good. I only saw one cut. There's actually two cuts. There are. There's a British cut, which is a few minutes shorter, so I opted for the longer American cut, which is also the one that has been restored. Well, what's um, really weird is the British cut... Uh, that was because you know this was this was one of those films that was going to cause the death of the empire, seemingly in the video nasties uh, era. And you look at it now and go, really? Did they cut it for gore for time. I, that's, that's, because uh, I think it, this it, movie it, could benefit from cuts for time. Yeah, I, I wanted more gore and more mo- zombies and less people just walking through the woods for no purpose. Yeah. Oh, there's there's some there's some meandering. Let's just walk through here slowly. There's, there, there's there's some meandering to bulk it up to time uh, sufficient time to sell for uh, uh, to put on the um, uh, the drive-in circuit as an actual full blow. There's a zombie <laughs> coming. I'm going to back up slowly. But the, I'm going to keep extras, backing up slowly. Yeah, the extras are great. Oh yeah, the extras are wonderful. Except this for the music great. videos, you can skip those. Yeah, They're there, worthless. There's a but there's a lot of old you know, old interviews with with cast. There's mm-hmm. a, a wonderful tribute video. Uh, just after Bob Clark had died, where they're having a screening of this, and they really give tribute to you know, oh, Clark's yeah. influence on this, which is well worth watching. Yeah. This is yeah, if a lot of people came out of the woodwork for that one. The commentary tracks are great. This is a yeah. you know, if, if if this is an obscure little corner of, of horror history that a lot of you may have heard of. Uh, like I said, this is it's it's a transition movie in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, I between think that's years. right. It's also watching it clearly very influential. On a lot of Italian and French horror directors of the late seventies, yeah, I could see them looking at this, going, "Yeah, we could do that more disgustingly." Yeah, the, you know, it's, in fact, in some and ways, we can do it slower too. In fact, some ways, probably more like more of an influence than um, *Night of the Living Dead*. In some weird ways, there's some moments where I'm like, "This really feels like the guys behind *The Eyeless Dead*." watched it or Jean Rollin watched some of this stuff and went yeah well, I think I also because this stuff was banned something. when it went to Europe so that just upped its cachet further and then you look at some of these uh, so called video nasties and now that I've seen some of them I'm like wow this really wasn't all that good but I can see how a whole generation of kids thought, oh, this has to be seen because it's forbidden. Yeah. You know. Anyway, <laughs> check out the special features. If you like this kind of stuff, you're going to have a good time with that particular disc. Speaking of, of uh, actors, ah, as we yes. were. Um, Finally, a good actor we can talk about. One of the, wait, wait, is that chocolate on this disc? <laughs> what happened? Oh. I don't know. I think you got chocolate on it. You got chocolate on Stephen Tobolowski. You know what? Texas he Film wants Hall. it that way. Texas Film Hall. He was actually staring at it as well. It's really, really. It's good. really right at the Texas, corner of the screen. You couldn't frame it any better. Texas Film Hall of Famer uh, Stephen Tobolowski. It is chocolate. I must have had some candy while I was eating this disc. <laughs> I hope you, it's chocolate. <laughs> Yay. This, chocolate. This is uh, Stephen Tobolowski, The Primary Instinct. Uh, Stephen Tobolowski is. <laughs> if we say the name, you're not going to know who he is. He's that guy. He is the. Uh, epitome of that of that guy um that character actor who you will recognize because you've seen on a billion things before on film and television but you may not know his name probably the role he is best known for and by his own admission uh is ned the uh the genial but annoying insurance salesman from uh groundhog's day ned ryerson i believe yes. was his name uh so you've seen this guy a lot but but like i'm just gonna okay. re- read through some of the things that he has oh, been yeah. in you'll go oh you've seen it. that guy the mindy project uh uh californication uh justified uh god what else was he in I glee think- 
as Sandy Ryerson, which is a, clearly a, a, a reference. Yeah. Uh, he was briefly on Community. I think he was in the uh, original Mission Impossible movie. Uh, Heroes. Uh, John from Cincinnati. Uh, yeah. It goes on and Wild, on. Wild Hogs. Prolific. Big, big Day. Deadwood. He was Hugo Jarry in Deadwood. Um, yeah, this guy has been CSI Miami. He, you know, he was he was the DA in that for years. He has been in so many things, and you just look at him and go, "Fat dude, that you know." Oh, he's him. not even that. I fat. recognize from he's just a chubby looking face. He's just been in everything, and he's been prematurely bald for like thirty years. So he always has looked the same in a way. He's kind of like Wallace Shawn in that sense. He oh he's, he looks exactly the same as he did in Groundhog Day. Yeah, I mean, it, it is Groundhog Day. Again. He's really just repeating that day over and over, and, and just this, acting while that. This happens. really is. Uh, there's a brief interview intro uh which is just him talking mm-hmm. to camera uh and then really it's one of his um acting classes and well i wouldn't call it an acting well class, he, he kind of calls it an acting class it's yeah. really you know, it's a storytelling just, session yeah it just comes out and talks and tells a story and that's what that's his kind of approach yeah. Tobolowski is apart from being a very proficient uh jobbing actor uh he's also has not unlike say the late Spalding Gray he has this sort of side parallel career as a monologuist and storyteller and I think Tobolowski uh was one of the first people in Hollywood to kind of jump on the podcasting bandwagon yes. and start what uh, was known as the Tobolowski Files. And he's actually, a, even though he often plays buffoons or weird characters, in real life, Tobolowski is a, is a very warm, very, uh, very intelligent man. who has anybody who didn't, of who didn't have the best things to say Everybody about likes him. the guy. Funny, sharp. Uh, the stories he tells are very sweet, very poignant. Yeah. Um, and that's really what this is. It's basically a you know, if you like yeah. the Tobolowski Files podcast, this is absolutely for you. He, um, he's grasping with the with an audience question as the story goes that he he tells a story where one of uh, a member of his audience once asked him a child specifically asked him why do people tell stories and this is Tobolowski as a storyteller coming to grips with why exactly we do that and it touches on such things as memory loss, the evolutionary instinct to create memories, to observe the world, how we record it and relate it to one another. And then, of course, there's a lot of touching stories about dealing with his aging parents and some amusing side stories about his time and working on Hollywood movies. Uh, where I really think this disc uh, comes... Uh, covered in chocolate. Covered in chocolate. That's one of the special features, but only if you come to I my really house. I really don't want to know how that happened. I think that was a Twix bar. This is what happens when hey, I Twix, fall asleep we're looking, on the couch. For, we're looking for sponsors. If you want to advertise, that's us, right, we Twix. To, we promise to smear Twix on every. If you disc. own any food product, we will we will coat ourselves with it for the right price. Speak for yourself. Yeah, for the right price. Come on, work with me here. Okay. okay. Now, the uh, bonus, to clarify, any food substance, we will we will coat Marco in it for the yes, right price. But Richard will have to eat it afterwards. <sighs> now. Uh, that's a way to end the conversation. So, back to Stephen Tobolowski. One thing I really liked about this is if you watch the uh, special features, there's additional interview footage that didn't make the film, but there's one of the best stories that he tells uh, is a gripping story about something that happened to him in a supermarket, which I won't tell you here in case you want to watch this, but it's an interesting example of where this movie could have gone because what you're going to see on the main feature is basically your typical 
one-man show in front of a live audience. But at one point, they did consider staging these stories in locations and having them delivered to camera. And it's a really in a more cinematic way of doing it. For whatever reason, they decided not to do that approach. But they did get one story, the grocery story, uh, shot in that format. And uh, as it's, it sort of works as a little interesting uh, short film that's worth checking out. I just wanted to point that out in case uh, you want to explore the special features yeah. on that disc. Yeah, this is, this is fun enough for what it is. Yeah, nothing uh, earth shattering. But it is, it is what it is. Yeah, I think there's there's. Um you know nothing really to you know more to say about it if you if you like Tobolowski you're going to like this yeah um I think a, a, a film for people who are not going to expect how interested they're going to be <laughs> in who the who, who the subject is is um the shake now this actually is already on Netflix and has been for about a year but is popular enough that it actually had a DVD release which is kind of surprising um but the you know if you know, you can prove that a film is, is uh, has an audience, and people want to take it home. Good for them. Yeah. Um, this is the documentary uh, about the Iron Sheik, uh, the uh, professional wrestler, uh, whose whose full name Hossein uh, Khosrow Ali uh, Vaziri. Uh, <coughs> a lot of people remember him as he was the guy who had the legendary feud that really made Hulk Hogan into, you know, the, the personification of America. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the ultimate bad guy. He was the... the he was the know, Ivan Drago to his Rocky, basically. Yeah, he... Well, Ivan Drago ripped him off. Well, I, I, Ivan Drago really ripped off a couple of other um, uh, WWF characters, um, uh, particularly Vladimir Kozlov. Uh, not, not Kozlov, Kozlov almost liked him. Yeah, anyway, side point. But, yeah... <laughs> <laughs> the Vizier, you know, it talks about the Sheikh eventually. It doesn't rush into the story of this guy mm. as one of the most famous wrestling figures uh, mm. of his or any other era. He was the ultimate heel. He people hated him. Now but you have to explain that, that heel technique. Heel is is the term of art in wrestling for the bad guy. Yeah, you know, and he played it to the hill. You, a, a bad guy is supposed to get heel. Supposed to get heat. People boo them, and they they you know, they live off the hatred of the audience. Uh, there's good hate and there's bad hate. And he rose to prominence after you know our Iran uh, issues. The, well, the, uh, the, like, the gimmick, the, yeah. the shake gimmick, actually appeared in response to right. the hostage crisis. Correct. But what this does is so well is set up the history of Vaziri, mm-hmm. this guy who grows up in a tiny um, Iranian village. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goes on to, team. Gets on the Olympic wrestling team, becomes a bodyguard <laughs> yes. to the Sheikh, has to, you know, basically has to run away from Iran because... Uh, yeah, to going, the Shah of Iran. He's the personal bodyguard. Yeah, he, because he suddenly goes, uh, ooh, you know what? The Shah has a horrible habit of killing people who are close to him. Uh-huh. Moves to America, coaches the... Um, in Minnesota, I believe. Yeah, moves Why to Minnesota, Minnesota. Coaches the, uh, the U.S. Uh, wrestling team for two Olympics. Um becomes a professional wrestler as the ultimate good guy. He was this skinny baby face, mm-hmm. which is the term for a good guy. He was loved. He was, you know, strong and athletic. Um, and, you know, the ladies loved him. He was, he was a sex symbol. And then they go, let's turn you into a bad guy because everybody hates Iran. And he goes, okay, whatever works for the business and becomes a superstar. But then things go wrong for him. And you have this descent 
where there are things that are within his control that he screws up, and then there are things that are completely out of his control that just send him into a cycle of drugs, of alcohol abuse, his family is falling apart. And then he there is the weirdest third act to a life yeah. that you can possibly imagine, much of which is tied up in the um, the two guys who are also the directors of this. We're, so there is... Yeah, this is a little self-serving in places sure. because this is, guy was a family friend, uh, and they're now his managers, kind of exploiting an old man and the last vestiges of his fame. But at the same time, retaining some fame at a point where he was, when he needs the word, much likely to die. Yeah, like the Sheikh should have been dead fifteen years ago. And also, just at his age, after the years of abuse, not just through drugs, but like just the abuse that any athlete puts on their body. At some point, your primary form of income no longer works, yeah. and you have to reinvent yourself to survive. And he's done that. And in fact, this very, this very much made me think of a, a film we had reviewed not too long ago, which was I Am Thor, yeah. which also had that sort of idea of this guy who was an athlete who gets into the entertainment business, who has a rise and fall, and through the love of friends and family and dedicated fans, have if not made him a superstar, have at least managed to allow him to continue working on his own terms and eke out a career for himself. And it's and it also has that same heartwarming added, uh, aspect to it as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, far worse things happen to the Sheikh than ever happened oh, to yeah. before. I mean, there, there is some of this... And, and he is, brought most of it on himself. Yeah. <laughs> but the, this, is a, this is a guy who has been through an extraordinary life yeah. and had an amazing impact... Uh, on you know, one of the biggest entertainment industries that nobody really wants to take seriously. And that's the thing. A lot of people are going to go, oh, it's a wrestling biography. Yeah. Who cares? This is up there with the absolute best of the wrestling documentaries. This is up there with uh, Beyond the Mat, which I still think is the best examination of what it means to be a professional wrestler. Um, or what it meant to be a professional wrestler during the 90s. Uh, or Wrestling with Shadows, the Bret Hart documentary, which you know is, is about a guy who is at the top of the industry and suddenly realizes the in, that the people slightly further up the industry are still prepared to screw him over, mm. that he doesn't see what's coming. This is a guy who, you know, there's a, a degree still of, of wonderful naivety about him that is, you'd like to think, you, you almost think, he can't be, but he's just a guy who's never really kind of been forced to grow up because he's been forced to respond to tragedies so fast that come at him so quickly and then was in a business that encourages juvenile behavior to a certain degree that he never really quite became a fully fledged adult uh he i i had a chance to interview the shake a while ago he you know he, he calls you sir yeah and refers to everybody that he's dealt with as mister like vince mcmahon the man who fired him from the WWE yeah. he is very respectful. He, st- he, he refers him, calls him Mr. McMahon. I don't like he's the, he's kind which of is, an anachronism, which is wonderful when you look at his persona. Yeah, which is a let's be frank, and even one of his fans kind of jokes about it. it's like the Sheikh's English has never been the best, but he is a very he's hilarious, very funny in his pointed <laughs> observations, and really just. Potty mouth. Let's put it that way. But when you see him off camera, when he's when the character is off, 
he's a very sweet, very uh, you know polite man. So it's it's that wonderful dynamic yeah. between the stage persona and the real life guy. And a, at some point, they bleed into one another. And fortunately, he has people who loved him who helped him through it. This is for myself. Uh, who am not a huge wrestling fan, don't have a huge knowledge of the subject the way you do, but I absolutely agree with you. For a non-wrestling fan, you will still find much to appreciate in this film. Yeah. Um, you know, now we're going to move to, I have to say, this was my pick of the week. This, yeah. this next film is actually my pick of the week. Uh, mm-hmm. I think not least because um, after we had the horrible disappointment of Victor Frankenstein last year... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't say I was disappointed. I could smell it a oh, mile yeah. away and never bothered. It I, I felt that with that with that cast and crew it should have been so much better. Um, that Frankenstein, which is a modern update uh, of the Frankenstein uh, story, uh, I kind of fell in love with this film. Uh, this is uh, this. By far was was the the movie I, uh, this, out this week uh, out in this pile that I looked at and go I am most likely to go back and watch this again. I, I'm definitely leaning in your direction as well on that because this film, while it, it's a it's a brief little film, it, it's it's very it feels very small. Sometimes the low budget kind of betrays some of its ambitions. However, it does have a very strong central performance, and they do a very smart thing, which is they take the basic structure of the original Mary Shelley novel. And it's not just as simple as like, well, we're doing it only with people who have cell phones and things. There's a lot of little interesting twists on what you expect, down to the blind character, down to the little girl. Things that don't play out exactly the same way as they do in the novel, but are referenced and then lead the plot in different directions. What I found most intriguing is the idea that rather than a Frankenstein monster who's this big, hulking thing built up of body parts... You actually start off with a very handsome, uh, actually kind of beautiful young man. Played by uh, Xavier Uh, Samuel. And as we progress, and he's put together, the other thing that's interesting as far as the twist goes is we've always seen Victor Frankenstein as a kind of father figure. This is the first of the Frankenstein films that I can think of that actually introduce kind of a mother figure. uh, Played by Carrie Carrie Ann Moss. Yes. I mean, yeah, because you have... um the Frankenstein's, uh, played by Danny Houston and Carrie Ann Moss, who are basically it, it's they're not doing the historical thing of which actually Mary Shelley never actually says how that's the creature true. Is, is made uh, it, never like, again you're, beautifully avoids I'm it. conflating the movie as well, which and, I think most people do. And you know, the Frank- there's not the sewing together of body parts. Instead, they basically engineer. Uh, this creation at a cellular level and grow it in a lab. Yeah. Um, it is supposed to almost be the perfect person. But then the experiment starts to fall apart. They, you know, the cellular replication starts to fall apart. So he starts off in the way that, you know, Frankenstein intended in the book to create the perfect man and then becomes monstrous, but not in a simplistic way. Uh, and there were beautiful touches, like when the monster first becomes self-aware, it isn't something like, I am aware. I am a walking, talking human being. He is a baby. Yes. And yes. they play this beautifully. And there are moments where, you know, when they first try and give him some water, it's like, no, his autonomic response is, oh, I'm going to do that. You have to give, you have to bottle feed him. Mm-hmm. Because that's what babies' brains are wired up to do at that point. 
and that, that's done so beautifully and then the experiment goes awry <laughs> they basically decide to just throw the, this thing out and he ends up on Skid Row because where else are you going to go? And this becomes this really subtly put together commentary on what it means when we reject yeah. people. That you know, you know what you know. It's almost Frankenstein's monster as a uh, a metaphor for homelessness for a large and portion of he's it. Actually, I think he all but quotes the one percent line at some point yeah. when he realizes the distinctions between those who have wealth and power and those who and have this is, none. This is all done from the monster's right. point of view at a, a, as basically looking back on what has happened to him. So there is a, a, an incredible degree of eloquence to the voiceover as he explains you know, his, his stumbling movements towards both self-awareness and a sense of morality that works so extraordinarily well, and this is this is micro budget. When I first saw the trailer, particularly because the trailer emphasizes <clears throat> the the gore, sure. and there is some gore, and there's some good. But gore this is really a a beautiful low budget way to update a a classic and have it say something new and fresh and give you a real new take on the character and the monster is a character (laughs) and a tragic figure when there is a there is a reveal where you just feel the you know it's so heartbroken because you, you are reminded that this is not a person this is an attempt to create a person and will never be accepted can never be accepted you know, the whole thing is just uh, it it brings up all the questions from the original book of what it is to what it means to create life what that responsibility is which it, we're at a more pressing point with the developments in AIs with the development of, you know with the potential for full-fledged cloning or even just building a body at this point uh, growing uh, growing one the you know, this feels like something that wants us to ask those questions and doesn't want to answer all uh, answer yeah. all of them. I really would, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I'm a sucker for, for indie horror, particularly cerebral indie horror. And this is, you know, I think as good an adaptation of the actual book and an updating of it as you could do without f- five more scriptwriters, uh, you know, yeah. tearing the thing apart. Putting it back together, the fact is by Bernard Rose, uh, who did, who I thought had perennially blotted his copybook with the terrible SX tape, uh, which we reviewed uh, last year. One of the worst found footage movies uh, I've seen, and I like found footage when done well. That did nothing well, but this is up there with you know his early films like Candyman and Paperhouse. That you know. You know, Paper has a little bit over- overlooked now, but you really need to see that as a kind of a great uh, psychological horror. Candyman, which is you know still one of the strangest oh, yeah. horror movies of the, uh, of the era, because it, it really pushes the idea of the creature as victim, the uh, the boogeyman as yeah. as as you know merely uh, a, an entity of, of constant blind revenge, whether he wants to be or not. Uh, and I really feel, felt that this harkened back to that. This, is, I think, is by far Rose's best work in 20-something years. I would agree with that. And I'm inclined to agree with you as well as far as the uh, pick of the week goes. There's one or two little quibbles I have. One, which I think is a uh, – we can discuss it later because I don't want to reveal any spoilers. Uh, but suffice it to say, this is definitely one of the best picks that we have in this pile. Yeah. I, I, what yeah. else do we have in the pile? 
you know what? We're kind of we're, we you know, near the end. We're not quite near the end, but we we do have a we do have a couple of things still to go. I don't know whether you managed to catch Kill or Be Killed. I did. In fact, that was one I wanted to watch because I actually know some people who worked on this film, and back when it had the working title of uh, Red, Red Yellow, Yellow Killer Fella, which I thought was a much more interesting, distinctive well, title than. This generic <laughs> it, kill or be killed. It doesn't help that kill or be killed has actually been the title of. I think this is the fifth film. Didn't like Steven Seagal make eight movies with that title? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, you know, there's a South African uh, martial arts movie it's from a 1977. Horrible, horrible choice. Because this film, whatever you may think of it, it is at least distinctive, and the title would have helped indicate how distinctive it was. This is a a, a western. Uh, this is made by. Um, Dwayne Graves and Justin Meeks, who previously did the sadly underseen Wild Man of the Navidad, which is uh, one of my favorite weirdo little uh, Sasquatch movies. And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I love Sasquatch movies. Uh, it's a Texas Sasquatch movie. There's uh, not many of those. Um, uh, they also did uh, Bone Boys, which is Kim Henkel's kind of unofficial uh, extension of the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe. Uh, Really great little gore fest that I think a lot of people, a lot more people need to see. This time they decided to do a western with some horror overtones, some supernatural overtones. Potentially, they're, they're played a little ambiguously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's based very, very, very loosely on the uh, the legend of Sam Bass, who was a um, train robber in 1870s Texas, uh, who eventually um, uh, met his uh, demise just up the road from here in Round Rock. And there's actually a oh. road named after him, and I don't think people realize... People Sam, Round Bass, Rock. Uh, Sam Bass. Sam yeah. I don't think people realize he was a train robber. So That's it's not Sam actually Bass. a particularly good idea to name yeah. your... <laughs> Dear town elders, don't name your town after... A, yeah. a, a, pass your town after a killer. Uh, bad idea. You uh, would have to change a whole lot of streets in this country. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody, nobody's proposed doing Ed Gein Highway. Yeah, okay. You know? Fair enough, but... <laughs> There's plenty of powerful people who have some blood under the fingernails. But this is, uh, as you said, it is a Western with some horror elements to it. I actually did enjoy it. Uh, in fact, I liked it. It's It was almost my pick of the week, even though I think it suffers from being a bit too repetitious. Uh, suffice a, bit too, a bit too authentic. They go to huge efforts to create get, a, re, a very realistic sense of, oh, of time and place. That which, actually is to its benefit, I it, think. It works really, really well. Um, in setting the mood, but sometimes they go so deep into patois and dialect. You're like, what was that? Well, no, I actually appreciated all oh, of really, those really, elements. I really appreciate. I just felt there was too much. Uh, it was a little distracting. Well, um, here's the basic outline: is you have. Uh, a gang, in this case, uh, I think a guy go, who goes by the name of Sweet Tooth and Sweet his gang. Sweet Tooth Barbie, play, uh, played by Justin Meeks. Yes, right? and quite well, actually. He's actually a very engaging lead in this. And uh, his, uh, he busts out one of his compatriots from a prison chain gang who has the map to where they hid all their loot. So the mission is to travel 500 miles across Texas to Galveston to find this missing money. And all they have to do, apart from escaping <laughs> the law is just travel 500 miles. Yet at every opportunity, they stop to rob somebody, they stop at somebody's house where some horrific thing will happen. I'm thinking, you guys get... And every night, someone in the crew mysteriously dies until one by one they're picked off. I'm like, you could have started with five gang members instead of like 10 because that gets very repetitious. Like, 
Oh, we're stopping at a farmhouse. Also, I wonder what atrocity will happen here. And that's the problem with the first half is that you've got so many characters and you're trying to get your head around like, all the, the yeah. dialects and terminology they put so much work into that it's a lot to juggle. Once they actually thin out the characters and you've got used works. to everything, it becomes a lot right. smoother. But everybody is every slightly unpleasant. Uh, oh, the yeah. nicest character around is... is um, uh, a treacherous prostitute. Yes. Uh, actually, no. The ni- nicest character around is probably Michael Berryman as a as a yes. poor, innocent, passing doctor who they hit on the head. Yes. Because you know, he is the most. He's really there just to help. Yeah. And this, uh, and you know they do get a couple of horror cameos. He's in here. Ed Neal's in here. Yeah. From, uh, the uh, uh, the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which Bob. Again, uh, oh God, who was they? I uh, recognize one of the other uh, leather faces. Yes. What's his name? Oh, uh, thing. Uh, anyway, yeah, not the yeah. one, not Gunnar Hansen, the other Leatherface, not dead, the one who's not dead. Yeah, one one of the several who's not dead. One about six Leatherfaces yeah. now. But yeah, this is a fine little restoration western. Yeah. You know, um, I like I said, I, the second half I enjoyed yeah. a hell of a lot more. Oh, Marvel's with the budget, what they had to oh, work yeah. with, it really holds up. I just wish they had done another draft where they said we have a really good story idea here. We can get the same effect by just trimming out, you know, half of these scenes, location, and characters and scale back, and it would have been better. But it's still worth checking out. I- I'm curious to see what these guys have next yeah. on their plate. I, I'm, I'm big fans of these guys. Uh, they they do so much for other filmmakers as well. Yeah, I mean, if you like westerns, this is, uh, particularly you know, we're in a good era for the kind of return yeah. of the conventional western. This isn't as good as Bone Tomahawk, which I think is just phenomenal. Uh, but this is, you know, if you're in the mood for uh, horse opera with some violent overtones, yeah, I think pretty, pretty definitely a, a solid buy. You know what? You it's know a what tie th- for my pick of the week. Yeah. You know what this this brings us to? The giveaway. Yes. Okay. The giveaway, as always, um, yeah, you know, a a good home watch for you. Uh, this week, it is Alex Gibney's documentary. Steve Jobs, the man in the machine. Gibney, great documentarian. Big fan of his work. Uh, taking on one of the most complicated figures of the 20th century. Um, uh, yeah, this is not the Michael Fassbender um, uh, uh, narrative story. This is, this is uh, Gibney going deep into basically what a horrible human being yeah. Steve Jobs was. You know, I have to say right up front, I did not get to see this movie. Again, it was one of the ones where I decided if I had to cut something out of the list, it was going to be this one. Because I figure if, you know, there's been what, like, they put out a Steve Jobs-related film every other three weeks or so. It does feel like it. But, you know, I I do hear this is one of the better ones. Yeah. I mean, Gibney, uh, this is coming off the back of... Uh Going Clear, Gibney's uh, Scientology uh, documentary. He also did Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, uh, Client Nine, The Rise of Oliver Spitzer, uh, Taxi to the Dark Side. You know, this guy is is really, you know, arguably the best uh, documentarian working at the moment. The most consistent, I think. Um, there are people who've had bigger highs, uh, but, you know, he really is, is just on a, 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 an amazing run at the moment. If you haven't watched any of his films, this absolutely is where to get on board. Uh, and the, the thing is, you know, there's going to be some people who are going to go, oh, he's just being mean about Steve Jobs. It's very easy to be mean about Steve Jobs because yeah. Steve Jobs was not a nice person. Right. Everybody I know who had any even peripheral dealing with him uh, is, is pretty clear that he could just be horribly dictatorial convinced of his own genius uh and a guy and, and it does reinforce the fact that he was not a 
an engineer. He was oh. not a coder. He was a guy who understood markets and was prepared to manipulate them to get what he wanted. Um, and, and not always for the best. He had this kind of grand vision of where he wanted the world yeah. to end up. And in that way was you know kind of a, a visionary for and, and a futurist. But at the same time, he was prepared to leave quite a lot of bodies in his wake to get there. Um, a lot this of Chinese is, bodies making those iPhones. Well, also a lot of you know, you know throwing people like Steve Wozniak under the bus. Pretty, yeah. pretty co- well. But then again, you know, uh, Bill Gates does that. Did that as well. Oh, shit. Sure. Yeah. Um, this is yeah. This is brutal, but you know, earns every moment of, it, of its time. So, how do you win? Oh, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Oh, go. Last time you took me off guard and said come up with a question. Ooh. And since I didn't know the rules, I completely had a brain fart on air. It was horrible. However, it made me think about what my question would be. Ooh, okay. And I have a question, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, how you win this? Follow us on Twitter. On Twitter? The Twitter. It's been a long week. At one of us net. Use the hashtag jobs giveaway and Give us the answer to uh, this question. If your brain actually did fart, what would it smell like? That is a great question. That is a phenomenal question. Everybody says they have brain farts? What the hell does a brain fart even smell like? I'm curious, people. Tell us what you think. So, yes. So, just follow us on, t- on Twitter, at one of us net. And don't uh, say cinnamon. That's already taken. Oh, hush. Uh, use the hashtag jobs giveaway and answer that question and you could indeed walk away with a copy of steve jobs the man in the machine well worth it it's on blu-ray so if you've got a vhs player or you know, you're hoping we've got it on super 8 sorry uh but hand well well, camera won't work. well well worth taking this one home so we've reached the end we have indeed we have indeed so thank you again marco for being here thank you richard for being here yep don't forget uh follow all of uh, all of the, the uh, one of us podcasts uh, there's so many uh again thank you to our uh, our sponsors Thank you to everybody who signed up uh, to the site. Um, thank you to people who buy discs uh, uh, through the links below. We really, really appreciate it. It keeps us in business. And as always, to finish with the uh, with the chant that we always go through: No release is too big. No release is too small. From criterion to catastrophe, we review them all. Good night. Oh, good night. <laughs>